Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial. Go to audibletrial.com slash Rushmore. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'm joined as always by my good buddies Richard Hello. and Michael. Howdy. Richard and Michael, you know how they do. They always at each other's throats. They always attack each other. They always try to... Uh, Get a restraining... Wait a second. We, should, we don't need a judge to break this up. We need like, some cops. Or a ref, an actual ref. And I'm here to get them to have a full mouth, open tongue kiss before the day is over. I'm game if you okay. want. Okay. All right. That's fine. It's, 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 it's the double odds, or whatever we're calling them now. Thanks for keeping an open mind. Um, this episode is about the Mount Rushmore of It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. Michael, you chose it. Explain. This is a song that has just a lot of kind of disparate... Um, Words? Yeah. Just a, a lot, lot of, of words. Just things that just jump out throughout the song. It's this kind of stream of consciousness type song. I think there's ultimately a theory or a story behind it or a meaning to it, but listening to it, um, I, R.E.M. is just I th- a great band. Right. And uh, Michael Stipe is a really great lyricist who kind of touches on a lot of different things and is all over the place. And some stuff, some of his stuff is kind of a lot more poetic than others. And this one is just so frenetic that it seemed like, oh, we can go so many different places with either the lyrics or just mm-hmm. ideas of the song or what it, whatever. And it seemed like it was a, a good doorway to talking about an interesting song, a fun song. Yeah. But see where two dopes kind of have their ideas about this song. Yeah. Did yeah. They- and this is a song that I know that was a very stream of consciousness type song for him to write. And God knows it comes out in the lyrics. Yeah. So it's kind of, I think, a little bit of our stab to, to sort of pick out some of the interesting bits from the song, whether lyrically or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Got to go with it. As a podcast that dissects some elements of popular culture or history, this is perfect because it has all of that it has and more. all of that yeah. and more, yeah. Richard, jump in. Leonard Bernstein! Nice. That's my first pick. Is okay. That's probably the one line that, if you know no other line from the song, you know yeah. that one part yeah. where they shout. Leonard Bernstein! Um, and in terms of Leonard, Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein. I mean, it's just, we're never going to have a classical music conductor or composer who is as famous in his time as any, really, at the time, any pop or rock musician was. That's what Leonard, Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein was. Yeah. You know, in the... 50s, 60s, through the, mm-hmm. I guess, through the 80s, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing that there was someone doing what he did who was this, you know, pop culture icon. Yeah. You know, I, uh, like a lot of people, I remember watching him as a kid do- doing the thing where he would, like the young people's concerts. Yeah. Where he would sit there and they'd do Peter and the Wolf and he would break down, like, now the flutes are playing the part of this animal and mm-hmm. really breaking down, you know, bit by bit, sort of how classical music actually worked. And any sort of love I have for classical music probably can be directly traced. Leonard Bernstein! There's only two really important uh, conductors. It's him and it's Bugs Bunny Bunny? dressed up as Leopold. Yes. Right? Those two and then that's it. I I can't think of any others. Good. Okay. Um, You know, one thing that back in, I think it was like 68 or 69, somewhere around there, he had a, a CBS TV special about the new music. 
and it was just all about rock and roll. Jeff, I don't know if you've have you seen, I've seen this the yet? Beach Boys. I've seen the the Brian Wilson segment. Of okay, it. yeah, and that's it's basically an opening segment with him, and then there's two or three segments that's basically trying to talk about talk talk to the squares about this new rock and roll music and where mm. it's going and mm. all the the hippie stuff, right? But the first segment is basically about ten minutes of him just him at a piano talking about these rock and roll songs that he likes and why he thinks it's irrelevant and it's relevant and important. And a lot of them are Beatles songs. He was known to be a proponent of the Beatles, not just as musicians, but real innovators. And it's him sitting there at the piano talking about why something like, uh, gotta get you into my life is something that even if you're not a rock fan, if you're a parent of a kid who is a rock fan, why, why you should appreciate this. I was alone. I took a ride. I didn't know what I would find there. And he would like like talk about why that like mm-hmm. little change, you know, the key change there between those two parts, why that was so important. And we're never going to have anybody like that again. There's just, we're so culturally devoid now, you guys. We don't have anyone. I, I can't think of anyone who's like a culture, a, 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 a figure of actual like culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's kind of like the Neil deGrasse Tyson. Sure. Of uh, of explaining things, except Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of comes off as an asshole these days. You think so? He well, you know, there's some. I think he has a good heart, <laughs> although and a large one. Uh, although I'm sure that he would explain scientifically whether a large heart is good or bad for you. Right. That's the kind of thing that um, Neil deGrasse Tyson does. He's starting to get into that where he's every- a little too over-explaining, and like he's lost the. Ah, we get it. Where every science movie that comes out, he has to be the a-hole who sits there and tells you why gravity was such a... None, none of this could possibly yeah. happen in this movie. It's like, come on. Well, it seems like he's building bridges to you and the scientific world, whereas uh, Bernstein was building bridges between culture, between youth and adult culture of the time. Yeah. Generations. Yeah, even though he was yeah. someone who was of the parents' generation. Yeah. He was somebody who... And somebody who came from a musical background that was certainly... You know, he was, uh, you know, I think mentored by Aaron Copeland, for example. Uh He was not somebody who was um, of that era, but he was somebody who could say, uh, it was somebody who had credibility with the parents as well. Yeah, and he's not just an entertainer. He himself was composer of... Of that music too. Did right. Did he do Candide or Candide, yeah, which yeah. One my family just went to go see and was, oh. liked it a lot. Uh, of course, obviously West Side Story. Uh-huh. Um, and, at, and in terms of trying to place this in the context of this song, you know, there's the four LB initialed yeah. people who are named in this song. Yeah. And I, I won't name them all because we may get to at least one more of them at some point <laughs> here. Um, Lane Bryant. Lane Bryant's one of them, absolutely. Um, Michael's type shopped at Lane Bryant. Back and, in those days. And I'm, they I, did wear clothes a little baggier then. Yeah, they <laughs> and, he was, and he was a lith guy. He was, he, was, he was the Moby of his day. And I'm just thinking, I'm thinking about Leonard, Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein in terms of the context of Michael Stipe and why that may have been sort of referenced at the time. We've got like marimbas going on here in the background, you guys. It's where we're, we're doing a live broadcast at the, at the Jungle Cruise at this, Disneyland, by the way. Uh, this, the new studio might be haunted because <laughs> we have heard like this ghost cat outside. Right. We've heard like a creepy, uh, uh, you know, Jack in the Box. Oh, we hear uh, an airplane now, but that's just an airplane. That's <laughs> your standard airplane. But we heard like the this ghostly, um, you know, round and around the mulberry bush sort of thing <laughs> happening, and then we heard, yeah, you know, the marimbas. It's getting weird out there. Kind of freaky over here. I, where is I? Oh yeah. So why 
why did this maybe come to Michael Stipe's head when he's doing the Stream of Consciousness song? One of the things, like, I don't think this is probably why, but I find it interesting that Michael Stipe was living as an artist, a, a, a public figure, at certainly that point in the late 80s, as a gay man, but trying to you know, hide that or mm-hmm. not talk about that or kind of keep that yeah. compartmentalized. And that's something that Leonard, Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein did as well. Oh, didn't know. He was gay, mm-hmm. um, but was married and had three kids mm-hmm. um, and did not, I don't even know that he was ever out, out, yeah. but he was, you know, after his wife died, he went to go move in with a, his boyfriend. Oh. Um, but it was always that, that kind of like compartmentalizing sort of thing. Yeah. He was, where he was, he was married, but he was, and they were in love, but they weren't. And they had kids, but he was still gay. Yeah. And I, I just find that interesting that Michael Stipe would, would choose somebody like that when at the time he was certainly, I, th- I think, going through similar issues in his uh. own life as he was becoming more, more famous mm. and having to deal with what the ramifications would be if he came out. You know, you know, I think if he, if he were to um, explain that to all the kids at the MTV Beach House party <laughs> while he was... <laughs> singing it. Right. That they all would have been more enlightened into the <laughs> meaning of the song and its place as a overview of the second half of the 20th century. Well, I remember when they were on Yo! MTV Raps yeah. would with the Stipe, song Radio Song, by the way. Would Michael Stipe have been a lot more fun if like his, um, if at the MTV Music Awards, if he took off all those shirts, you know, kept yeah. taking them off, da 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 and if he got danced like a tank top. <laughs> and he's just like, hey! Let's party! <laughs> let's party! party. He wears a tank top like me. <laughs> oh, it's cool. I loved uh, love that deep dive, uh, and you could have picked any of all the LB names, and that was a good well. One let's to start with. we're gonna get into that. It's very interesting because my first pick is the stream of consciousness of the song okay. and where it kind of came from, and we'll touch base on all four LB names, even though one may come up later. Rick. Sure, sure. Uh, I guess part of his songwriting came out of like this this dream state or part of it was this dream that he had where he was invited to a party where the only person, he was the only person there whose name didn't begin with LB. It was like a party for Lester bangs. Oh wow. In his dream, it was, uh, it was the The aforementioned, (laughs) (laughs) the uh, hugging doctor, uh, Leonard Bernstein, uh, Lenny Bruce and, uh, Leonard, uh, Brezhnev. Okay. And so in his dream, he was the only person and, talked about feeling out of place uh-huh. and it, I'm always interested in the way that songs oh, hi, Lisa Bonet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it took me a while yeah. enough to, me long enough to get that. You guys she, are, you that's, guys, that's that's time that's time centric. That's fine. You guys out there, if you have an LB celebrity that you think would fit in, just yeah. feel free to, to reach out to us on social media and hey, let us know. Is Fleetwood Mac coming? Nah, just Lindsay Buckingham. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I bet he was there in his, in his dream party. I'm always interested in how songs are written, whether they start with music or yeah. whether they start with lyrics. And I never understand songs that come out of uh, music. Like if someone yeah. writes like, oh, this is because I don't, because I don't, obviously I don't play music. I don't, I barely understand music. Mm-hmm. I like to listen to it. Sure. But I don't know how to yeah. write it. So I'm always interested when a song comes out of uh a melody gives birth to Yeah, the, I don't yeah. understand it. But something like this, I feel like I can relate to. Mm-hmm. That are just like these random thoughts, the stream Ooh. of consciousness, and um, you know, the song just is just you know overflowing with just like images and things that he saw. It, it was a. This is the only bit of research I did for 
<laughs> this episode yeah, okay. was re- he would like gave an interview to GQ about writing the song, and he talked about how this is a song built on just these images that I see on TV, here on the radio, or just day to day, or in my dreams, and all of it's kind of meshed into one. Yeah. And as you listen to it, it kind of feels like someone that's just kind of like spewing forth and expecting you to know what he's talking about. Do yeah. the kids know who Leonard, Leonard? The kids. Do the kids know who Leonard, Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein is? Could be. Doesn't matter. He's still singing about him. Do, right. they, do they know who Lenny Bruce is? All the people that he kind of mentions, even Lester Bangs died in 1980 or 1982. These are all kind of older or dead people mm-hmm. or you, you're either of that generation that knows who they are or you're kind of... Yeah. Look, you have to go look them up, or you have to figure out who they are. And, this, and you couldn't like wiki. Yeah, in nineteen eighty-seven, eighty-nine. Yeah, yeah. You either know who Lenny Bruce is, or Lester Bangs, or or you did, don't. Leonard Bresnik. Did it yeah. say that any of it was just more placeholder words? Because I've heard Michael Stipe say that his bandmates always wanted him to write enough words for the whole melody. Oh, and I don't he know. Would get he would get lazy, and then, uh, um, you know. Uh, Andy Kaufman in a wrestling match. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because he didn't mm, want to write. That's my favorite lyric. <laughs> that's a great lyric. He didn't want to write four syllables. I don't know. It reminds me of, did we talk about, um, I listened to a Weezer podcast, or he was on like Song Exploder. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Rivers Cuomo. Was the one I was and he was talking about how he writes songs where he just thinks of phrases, throws them on a spreadsheet, yeah. goes in and grabs them. Mm-hmm. You know, writes the music independently and just figures out what's like that is crazy to me yeah. too. I'm just always I'm always in awe of like this sort of songwriting, whether it comes from like from whichever way it comes together. Mm-hmm. I, it's well, this this one. If I think of artists being influenced by a different medium and that impacting the result, this this almost seems like the equivalent of the Beatles Sgt. Pepper album cover, where you're taking pop culture. And you know, taking all these aspects of it and putting it onto a canvas, mm. and this, these lyrics are the canvas. So. And and Michael Stipe is someone who's known for some fairly obtuse lyrics, I guess. Yeah, or lyrics that are not necessarily maybe kind of obscure the real meaning of the song, or it makes it difficult to really ascertain it. I mean, look at a song like "The Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight," where he's got a whole cur- a whole. Uh, Verse that's basically him listing things that he might like to eat, like a candy bar mm-hmm. or have some Nescafe. Do you th- um, I, I, I will give a dollar to anyone who could sub- sufficiently explain to me what that song is about. So, Jeff, you mentioned uh, the Sgt. Pepper yeah. uh, album cover. Uh, on that album cover is my second choice, the other oh, LB. Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce. Oh, right on. Cool. Um, and I want to bring Lenny Bruce up. Of course, the controversial stand-up comedian from the 50s and 60s. Uh, well-known for his fighting censorship and often losing, getting arrested on obscenity charges on several occasions. And I just want to ask a question, and maybe, Jeff, you're the stand-up historian of the group, expert. Was Lenny Bruce funny? Because I... Well, he wasn't afraid. That's true. We know he was not afraid, but was he actually funny? He was funny in the way the comedians were expected to be funny then, and then he became important in a way that comedians were never expected to be important. So as a comedian who originated, I think during our readers or listeners, go back and listen to the stand-up comedy, hacky stand-up comedy um, 
topics podcast um, with comedian um, Murray Valeriano. At, for most of the history of stand-up comedy, comedians were not expected to be good. They were just expected to have jokes. And so right. Lenny Bruce, who cut his teeth in vaudeville houses and opening for strippers and things like that, did everything a comic was supposed to do, and that was keep the audience from tearing the place to pieces by distracting them with one-landers and jokes. And Lenny Bruce also had a very good um, dialect uh, bits. A lot of comics in the first half of the 20th century, especially in New York, had material that was based on foreigners and funny, the funny Irish guy or the funny spick guy or the right. funny this or the, the wop. So he, he was everything that a comic needed to be, and then he was more than anybody expected. So if that's an answer. <laughs> I don't, so was he funny? Yes. You think so? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I found him entertaining. If you ever see Thank You, Mask Man, or um, see, now that's, Come as a Verb. Yeah. See, the Thank You, Mask Man, to me, my brother, God rest his soul, would play that for me multiple times trying to get me to appreciate it. And yeah. it, that's, of all the stuff my brother tried to turn me on to, that that's just not working. never stuck. And I went back and listened to it a couple of years ago. Um, and Your argument is he's not funny. My argument is, I think, that he is someone who is seen more as a hero. Yeah. And someone who is seen as being respected for what he stood for. Yeah. A comedian's comedian, that uh, sort of thing. Well, not even. I, partially, I think that more so than that, it's, it's some people respect him for the fact that because of what he did and what he went through, other comedians were then able to come forward and have a style of comedy, not just in terms of the vulgarity or obscenities or anything like that. Yes, partially that. But also, he had a style of stand-up comedy that was very, I guess, riff-oriented and sort of based on very stream of, again, Mm -hmm. very stream of consciousness, almost like the lyrics to this song. So someone In live recordings, the audience is laughing their asses off. Right. I I just want, I just, I have not, other than the Thank You Mass Man, I have not went back and listened to a Lenny Bruce set yeah in yeah in live a long, recordings long time. of his earlier career unless until the time he was regaling his audience with the courtroom proceedings right. of his trial which was boring the shit out of people people you you hear the audience visibly laugh or audibly laugh not audibly go oh you're really important they're laughing okay yeah yeah interesting i think yeah. just to me i just i just picture him as somebody who you wouldn't have had George Carlin without Lenny Bruce. And if you don't have George Carlin, it's it's fa- yeah. foundational building block person. Yeah. But I mean, Patton Oswalt, no offense, Jeff, has basically has like a, a, uh, he has an essay. It was actually about Bill Hicks, but he starts it off by saying he doesn't find Lenny Bruce funny. Yeah. And if comedians say they find Lenny Bruce funny, they're lying. Okay. So Patton, Patton Oswalt just called you yeah. a liar. Well, you asked, happened. was he funny? What, what a long saying, way like, for a setup for an insult on you, Jeff. He took the scenic route. You took the scenic route. You could have come down straight down yeah. the five. <laughs> nope. But no, you went along the coast. You cut in. You let Jeff set it all up. And then you just cut right back in. And then I, I let, that was brutal. Then I prefaced, prefaced it by the Patton Oswalt thing. So it's I, not even me saying it, Jeff. It's Patton Oswalt who's saying it. Okay. I, I'm just saying that people were laughing on the recordings and they were dead before Patton was born, so maybe. Do you think it's, do you think it's a, how well do you think it's aged, would you guess, or would you suspect? I, if, if you said, uh, you know what I think is, it's in, 
it is so removed. I, I'm trying to think of a way to, to describe like something that was as innovative then. Free, freedom of speech is something that in entertainment is something that's very well protected now, and it wasn't protected then. Sure. And it wasn't protected in that venue. So now we have people who we wish would shut up when they're so expressive about how they feel and their opinions and things like that. Now, stuff that Lenny Bruce was saying then is the stuff of slam poetry, which we hate now. <laughs> right. So I, if I were to hear his, if a young person were to hear his act now, they would say, oh, there's a guy in my high school who does that at a coffee shop on Friday night. And, and here's what's interesting to me about that is me personally don't think it's aged super well. Although I think that what he does, this sort of style of humor, you can draw a pretty direct line. If you want to say slam poetry, I'd say sort of the alt comedy comedians of like the 90s, 2000s. Got people who were more interested in telling a story that had jokes weaved in instead of necessarily going joke, you know, set up, punchline, set up, punchline, set up, punchline. Having said that, I could listen to the button-down mind of Bob Newhart yeah. all day. And I think that has aged incredibly well, even though I think from a structural standpoint, it's something that's very of its era. Mm-hmm. Versus Lenny Bruce, who for me, I think is someone who structurally, how he approached comedy is very modern. But, I, but be, yeah. even beyond that, even taking that into account, I don't think it's uh-huh. aged as when well. When you brought up the fact that your brother tried to... Uh, impress upon you the quality of this entertainer. It made me think of how many people tried to get me to think Frank's, Frank Zappa was awesome. Oh, sure. <laughs> and based on his musicianship, his innovation, and his edginess was, was the reason they were trying to impress upon me that isn't the guy great. And all those things didn't get my toe tapping or didn't get me super excited about it. Whereas the Be- if you listen to a Beatles record, you, you can... You can Introdu- that's been introduced to three generations since then. And, and, you, but, and you can sit there with Zappa and go, okay, well, I understand. I appreciate where, in the context, he's important. Yeah. I can understand why you would, why you talking to a friend, why you would appreciate it. It's just not for me. It's not for me. I, I would say Lenny Bruce, like Picasso, <laughs> learned at a young age to imitate the masters that came before him and dispensed with it more quickly than any artist had to find the new thing. Sure. And you might look at a Picasso now and go, my kid could do that because that person doesn't even look like a person. That lady's got two eyes on the same side of her nose. Right. And then you would be an idiot because you would realize that that was a statement, that was an innovation, and that was something that had never been done before. But Which, to put it in the context of this song, which I'm, I'm trying to do with as many of these choices as I can, you know, we, we, I, I think it's easy to look at the Lenny Bruce is not afraid and just put that in the context of, well, not afraid of getting arrested or something like that. But it, to your point, I think he was also not afraid to get up there and try something comedic that no one had done before. And like maybe that's a good way to put it, is that he was willing to learn from the masters and then like like a dolly or somebody just rip it up and then start all over. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm amazed that the this song is also about a a stew of influences that were floating around, bumping into each other like as quickly as I mentioned. Um, I don't know how we got to Lenny Bruce from oh Sergeant Pepper album cover. So right. the, the Beatles as musicians were very interested in. Uh, Playwrights and um, novels, poetry, and 
poetry and paint, painters and art, visual artists of the time. And like the Rolling Stones, they were um, patrons of the arts and they hired the, some of the most innovative artists to do their album covers. And so the fact that uh, Lenny Bruce was living in the stew that also included um, the French New Wave filmmakers and all the all these things right. were floating around then, and he just he just got and talked about it in a place he shouldn't have talked about it. So right, I just probably. I just find it interesting that Michael Stipe would include him in his list of references. Like you said, it, it you know I'm sure it was a lot of this dream that he had, but you know he's not. I don't think REM songs songs. I don't think controversial like lyrics necessarily. Yeah. So. I, I think Lenny Bruce was doing what Michelle Wolf did at the White Horse yeah. Correspondence Dinner. Standing there saying shit that was happening right outside the door and ruffling the feathers of the establishment who thought that this wasn't the place to talk about it. So. Alright. Michael. Uh, there are two types of people. Yes. Those that know all the lyrics to It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. And those who fall off after the second line of the second verse. Okay. You get to the point where you're like, all right, that's great. Starts an earthquake. Know what I'm, know what I'm doing. Okay, settling in. Verse two. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself churn. World serves its own needs. Uh, oh, boy. Oh, let me just wait till we get back to the chorus. Wait, there's a word that comes out. There we go. Back yeah, in. Go. It's the, and then you start singing along. Uh, my wife, Emily, is a person who knows all the lyrics to the song. Oh, she does. Very proud of it. Oh, Sat wow. down with her friend, um, Triona Murphy, in her junior year of high school, would re-listen back and forth to the song just wow. to get it, get all the lyrics written. Now, this is before I could go on to, like, songlyrics.com and yeah. just look up the lyrics. And, listen over and, and over. There's you, no lyric sheet, I would imagine, in, in document for this, right? I don't, I don't know, but I'm guessing there isn't. Mm. And I'm guessing maybe they didn't even have the CD. Maybe they just had it taped off the radio. But this is a song that you think that you, you go into it so hot and heavy, and you're like, okay, I know bits and pieces, and then right away yeah. it just falls off. And... uh I don't know. It's like a song like uh, uh, Blur's Girls and Boys. Sure. That you start getting into like the, the chorus for that, and people are just like, I don't even know. It's all over the place. <laughs> Richard, <laughs> Richard is sitting there trying. Two girls, two girls, two girls, two girls, like their boys, two boys. Yeah, like you're close. Girls. But like, <laughs> right. this is a song. But you have to think about it. It's not like, it's just not rolling off of the tongue. Yeah. I think that. That sometimes I don't think it's I don't think it's a music snobbery. I think that it is a when you love something so much and you want to sing along to it, and a song like this that is kind of so all over the place isn't really straightforward, is so stream of consciousness that you don't necessarily know what he's saying all the time. So you have to go back and kind of like you got to really listen to it again. You got to listen to it again on your fortieth listen. You're like, that's what he's saying. <laughs> uh, He's saying vitriolic, patriotic, slam fight, bright li Like, I didn't know he was saying. And you just keep going back and you keep listening. And, okay. why, and why would anybody say that? I, so so I'm, I'm going to say this is close enough to my third choice that we, that we should just lump this in. As sure. Because oh, okay. mine is the line, Operation Rescue is offering alternatives and I decline. Mm -hmm. And I bring that up. It's an interesting line to me because it's not actually in the song. That's just <laughs> literally how I have heard that lyric for 30 years <laughs> until I looked it up to do the to do this, <laughs> this show 
which and, and it oh, may, the offer me solutions. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, 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 the line is they offer me solutions, offer me alternatives, and I decline. What did you think it said? Uh, Operation Rescue is offering <laughs> alternatives because Operation Rescue back in the eighties, uh-huh. for those of you who don't know, was like this anti-abortion hmm. group that was well, one of their big main things they were doing was trying to get out there and fight Planned Parenthood by. They were the ones who would have like the pictures of the aborted fetuses outside yeah. of Planned Parenthood. So it, the lyric made sense, right? As much as any lyrics in that song does. Yeah. It's him basically saying, well, fuck you all. You know, yeah. Operation Rescue. This, yeah, this song might be on the Mount Rushmore of misunderstood lyrics. And that's my point. Is so that many, yeah. I guarantee you, you listening out there, you have a lyric in the song that you are sure of, that you are <laughs> yeah. dead wrong about. Unless you're someone like Emily... Who I'm surprised that they have like I wonder if they had like a REM coming to Indianapolis. All you need to do to win is call in and say I'll, all of the words correctly. I remember I'll make they sure would do she responds on, on. I'll make sure that she responds on t- Twitter or on like our Facebook group or whatever. And uh, we, we'll we'll get to the bottom of how she actually got to all of the lyrics because I know that was a popular thing. I know K Rock would do that. Like if REM mm. was coming, they'd have the on Kevin and Bean. They'd have you call in <laughs> and. They, they would stop the song, and then you'd have to immediately say like the next couple of lines of lyrics, and yeah. like, nobody got it right, because everybody <laughs> screwed up a line at some point. That's I funny. would love it if Michael Stipe was just calling into K-Rock. <laughs> I think I can win, win this one, you guys. <laughs> I think I'm going to uh, do it. Operation Rescue. <laughs> Operation, Operation I mean, Rock we are... I'm sorry, that's not right. Next caller. I'm Michael Stipe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, wait, we're based... We're basing these lyrics on something that we're reading on the internet. Man, the internet is all lies. What if he is saying Operation Rescue? We don't know. Oh, yeah. And and who knows? I mean, he was a a world-class mumbler back then. And (laughs) as somebody who is a world-class mumbler myself, I can emphasize with him, especially you take that and then you're singing lyrics at maximum speed. I guarantee, I know like the replacements, like Paul Westerberg would sing a different version of the lyrics every night in, in concert and just... Whatever the one that happened to be during the recording sessions, the one that That's the one. made it, yeah. everybody thinks is the official version. Who knows? Maybe Michael Stipe has 20 different versions of this song with 20 different yeah. lyrics. Who knows? It, it's like a, um, uh, Pearl Jam's Leadbetter, uh, Yellow Leadbetter, right. where it, it's a lot of mumbling, and you're just like, what, he's singing about a, a, body in a, a body in a bag? I didn't even know. What is he talking about? <laughs> right. How hard was it to be the cool, deep alternative band back then? Because I think if your competitors were um, Thompson Twins or like Bon Jovi or something like that, all you'd have to do is just put Leonid Brezhnev in a song and people go, yeah, man. You guys are, this was, this was kind of right before they, hey, they kind of took off, though, right? I mean, is this, was this their... This is around... I think It was getting close, it was getting close to because... Um, out of Time came out. Well, it's before Out of Time, definitely. Um, but it's... This is what? This is on Document? It's on Document. And it's... That's the one that also has The One I Love, mm-hmm. which was their first, like... That was a pretty big song. That was their first, like, mainstream, like, hit. Yeah. So this was on the album that kind of broke them through at least to be like a mainstream rock band and then out of time well it was this song it was this song that the radio guys kept having to play over and over because they're like people keep requesting it because they have no idea what they're talking about they just people just like to sing Eh, they like to scream leonard bernstein when you get to that part (laughs) that's the one part everybody yeah the only that's again the only lyric everybody knows is the first couple of lyrics and then the leonard bernstein so dudes i think we're at halftime 
We are. We, we are. I think we're even more past halftime. But we're we going to take a halftime. We had some. It's like soccer. We had a had a couple extra minutes for yeah. a, <laughs> a yell card. A couple of guys got lightly touched and fell down, screaming and holding their ankles. So we had to add a couple of minutes onto the end. The, the only uh, this is the Matt Rushmore podcast. The only podcast with flopping, and uh, <laughs> we are going to invite you to go to iTunes and Stitcher and download, rate, and review our past episodes. We really would like to hear your opinion about the episodes you think we were nailing it and the ones you think we were inscrutably boring. Uh, but give us five stars regardless. And also, I want to give you something. Hey, come here. I want to give you something. Hey, no, come here. Don't don't be shy. Come on. No, don't 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 go around the corner. Come come here. Uh, you, since you're like one of the cool people, I can tell one of the cool listeners of Mount Rushmore podcast. Um, we want to give you something cool. It's a free audiobook download from Audible. That's right, a free 30-day trial that give you the opportunity to check out their service. You could check out Enough Rope with Andrew Denton with the guest Michael Stipe. That's an Audible audiobook uh, with Andrew Denton and Michael Stipe reading. You could check that out and over 180,000 other titles to choose from for your iPhone. Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I see you in your blousey shirt. I see you. You seem like a guy who likes alternative college rock, right? You're cool. Is that clove cigarettes? Oh, cool, man. Let me bomb one of those. Sweet. That's a nice, that's a nice vest you've got that's on there, cool Mr. Buck. silk kind of vest. That's yeah. really cool, man. Uh, are you pegging your trousers? Oh, dude, you're so cool. You know, with Audible, uh, you can download your free audiobook today. Go to audibletrial.com slash Rushmore. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash Rushmore for your free audiobook. And we've heard we're not the only podcast out there. And so with, I know, it's, we're the only one that matters. But these other ones are pretty good, too. So listen to this promo for another podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Jim Hankey and I'm the host of Vinyl Emergency, a podcast where musicians, producers, comedians, and those who dream up, press, release, or collect vinyl records discuss their relationship with the medium today as well as in their formative youth. Artwork that has stood the test of time, neighborhood record stores we remember, the first albums we ever bought, vinyl's warmth and sound, the tangible object of a vinyl record can bring forth so many intangible memories, and that's what we try to capture on the show. Guests have included Roseanne Cash, Ben Montench of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Brian Stack from Conan and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Ted Leo, Lily Hyatt, and Dave Porter of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. We've been known to do an episode or two in front of a live audience as well, and we also talk to everyday record collectors about what drives their passion. We even have episodes dedicated to the processes of mastering for vinyl, properly cleaning your records, the feeling of standing in line for hours on Record Store Day, and much more. Tune into Vinyl Emergency however you get your podcasts. Visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vinyl Emergency, or stop by our website, VinylEmergency.com. And we're back. And we want to invite you to go on Facebook and get uh, into the dialogue with us to let us know your favorite LB initial person. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you have the if you have the initials LB, if yeah, you can yeah. automatically come on the show. We will have you on as a guest. No yeah. Asked. Oh, totally. Uh, Lou Bega, come on over. <laughs> Let us know. Lou Barigno. Laura Branigan, <laughs> you're invited. I think she's dead. 
Oh, dear. I don't know, but I think she is. <laughs> uh, At least her career is, am I right? Oh, jeez. Uh, so, yeah, join us in the dialogue. Let us know future episode suggestions you'd like to hear. You can do the same thing on Instagram and Twitter. We'd love to have you follow our handles. Oh, I said it. On the socials. Laura Brannigan, update. Died in 2004. Oh, shit. Yeah. Really? So, her ghost. Hey. We've got ghosts hanging. I've got ghost cat around here. Might as well have a ghost Laura Brannigan. Oh, wow. At least we didn't kill her. No, we can't kill someone who's already dead. Yeah. Scientific fact. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we're back, and Richard's gone to his third, so Michael, what's your third? If you can pull it off, it's an A-plus karaoke song. <laughs> a lot of guys really? will go up. Oh, yeah. If you can knock this song you out of the park, kill it. Either, either you have to know it, like, a, like we like, mentioned. Like Emily by heart. Like Emily. Or you got to be a really good reader and hope that whoever translated it did a really good job. And... That the screen is advancing faster. Than that's that. right. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's the thing that you got to. You got to get. You, you got to get a good system. You got to be a good reader, yeah. which I'm not. Uh, I've discovered uh, as I'm reading uh, books that are meant for uh, ages zero to twelve months. Oh, it throws me up all the time yeah. when I have to say like the purple pig or like things like that. Yeah. Very. I could not do the song. Yeah. This is a song that I think a lot of people go into thinking they can do. Uh-huh. It's like white guys rapping. Just yeah. don't go up if you don't know the song. But if you do, I, it's like a crowd killer. Yeah. Because people know it. They know it. those little bits and pieces that they can like sing along. It's the, right. the, the Leonard Bernstein. Bernstein. It's all of those little bits and pieces that, that spike in the song that oh, are yeah, so yeah. great that people know uh-huh. that they think they can sing. It's like, what's that? Uh, is it Dancing Queen? That's a really ultimately depressing song. Uh, uh-huh. To the ABBA song Dancing Queen or, or yeah th- yeah that's fairly depressing there's a couple of them there's, there's a couple that like there's your, your Fernando's Fernando yeah that's another one there's a few that like people like to go up and sing but they really only know the chorus of and then you're just like they don't know what they're, yeah. they don't know what they're doing but this song man if you can kill it A plus yeah. you're getting a standing O well the only problem with this song this is a karaoke song that has a very long outro yeah that's that true the same thing over and over again that's true and, and, and whether you are, then you have to make the decision of whether you're just doing the Michael Stipe part at the end, or if you're going to get a little creative and do the Mike Mills, time I had some time alone. Mm. Or maybe you can get a buddy up there to help you out with that part. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're kind of stuck there at the end. That's one of those ones. At, at I the would, end, though, you can just walk off the stage and the, you just yep. let yeah, the let's DJ. Hear for Glenn. Glenn. You kind of got to make eye contact with the DJ and be like, we're yeah. done here. Uh, you can practice, though. Sour, not paying any attention. Yeah, no attention. Trying to. Trying to flirt with the bartender, yeah. <laughs> you can practice, though, on iTunes. They have this the karaoke version oh. of this song that you can just listen to. Oh, rad. So if you just want the audio only of It's the End of the World, as you know it, and oh, I feel yeah. fine, man, Sweet. make up your own lyrics, practice, start reading. <laughs> Do you feel like when this comes on, people think, like, I don't know, is there going to be a test on this? It seems like a <laughs> college course or something. Oh, Junior college, at yeah, least, yeah. so many references in this one. I also think what the way I would drink and do karaoke would never inspire me to do this song. Uh, drinking always just made me think, well, you can do a real dumb thing. Don't do the smart thing. Don't try to do that, that thing. But other people drink and then they said, hold my beer and <laughs> get ambitious. <laughs> uh, so I think, Richard, this is you rounding it out. Here. It is. And, Michael, you mentioned depressing songs uh, just a minute ago. Yeah. And uh, my last one is being fine with the end of the world as we know it, because that's what ultimately this song is about. 
And, you know, as much as, as you said, Michael, we it, this is a song that's fun to sing at full volume and boof about 90% of the lyrics, even if you have the karaoke. Um, but guess what? It's a pretty depressing song yeah. when you when you actually like read some of the lyrics mm-hmm. and just get to the idea of it. In fact, I'm not 100% sure this song isn't about depression. I think it could be when you do a close reading of the lyrics. If nothing else... It's, I, I think the most optimistic spin you can put on it mm. is that it's a song about, well, you know what? Things are screwed up always, all the time. Yeah. So, you know what? You might think that right now is the end of the world, but people 20 years ago thought it was Lenny yeah. Bruce. Part. They thought Lenny Bruce was the end when of you the get, world. When you open up the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, it starts with saying, this is the end of the world as we know it. Everything's so screwed up. Can't it get any worse? <laughs> yeah. We, we cannot, po- cannot yeah. possibly go further down than this. And... You know, I guess the optimistic uh, reading of it is being okay with it being the end of the world because then you can restart and kind of start over again. Hmm. Um, the pessimistic reading of that, of course, is everything is so miserable, I just want it all to go away. Which is why I kind of lean towards that this may be a song somewhat about depression. There, there's at least elements of that to the lyrics. But I don't know. I... I, it, I it, Everyone remembers the song as a list song. Yeah. But as we just talked about, the majority of the song, it really ties on that, is tied to that one lyric. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Mm-hmm. So just I'm trying to get at what does, that, what does that mean in the context of this song? And I think, like I said, there's an optimistic reading of it, and there's a negative reading of it. And I don't think, you know, the Mike Mills part at the end, the time I had some time alone... I mean, that could just be just like a fun, funny little thing to have him sing there, but it could also be sort of this, hey, the, I, I, I've, been, I've been almost, you know, inundated with, with all of these faction figures and, and, and characters and people. Yeah. Maybe I'd just like to chill the F out for a while. Uh, I think it, I, I'm more inclined to agree with Jeff on this in terms of it's always the worst time for someone. There's always horrible things happening to someone, and it's kind of about just like surviving it. Yeah, just dealing. There's always going to be the worst possible thing happening at any given time. You could probably go year by year and say, look at all these ten to a hundred things that are trying to kill us that are the worst things in the world, and then how do you deal with that? Sure. And I think that like whether he'd written a song in 1987 or written it in 2007 or written it in 1967 or whatever, there's always going to be these things that are just. Uh, world ending the world is constantly telling you the news is constantly telling yeah. you that the world is ending yeah. that uh everything's on fire everything's going to be on fire or whatever mm-hmm. and he's it is kind of a punk a, pos- a punk posture to be uh kind of fiddling while rome burns or to be mm. saying right. everybody run the homecoming queen's got a gun or this is this is you know I mean, they're a band that toured with black flag all over the place yeah. you know they were got to be good friends because they were always playing like one spot, you know, one night after yeah. each other. But this was also the end of kind of the beginning of the end of the Cold War and still Reagan era. So yeah. there was Star Wars and nukes and all that kind but of stuff. We can on. all agree that right now, this is the This really is the end of the world, the right? It's the worst yeah. possible time. Have you been on Twitter lately? Yeah. yeah. Not very good. Michael Stipe ain't even singing anymore. Exactly. That's okay. a bad, that's a bad That is up. something that I didn't know how to bring up. Oh. Um, I think it is extremely. I don't understand when a musician or an artist retires. Oh. Like, what ha- I, like okay. I don't understand 
just like the well, at sixty-five, it's mandatory retirement age <laughs> okay. for like most like Americans. How someone who is so pl- pro- prolific, yeah, who is, you know, he put they almost put out an album a year, it seemed for yeah. a good ten years, and then you just get to the point where you're just like, I'm am d- done. Yeah. I'm no longer like they. They hung it up in what, 2009, 10, something like that? Yeah. So for seven, eight years, he hasn't been writing any music? Hasn't been putting out any music? Well, he's done a couple of things. He's had a couple of solo songs. He. Solo songs? I mean, he, he I'm did not, a collab with Fisher Spooner. Well, I'm not, I'm not you know, yeah. anyone is welcome to do whatever they want with their lives and if they choose not to do whatever. I find it amazing when someone has done so much and put out so much important yeah. music, important stuff that they, somehow they just stop and they're just like, oh, I'm not... I, like, I, I understand when someone moves on to just doing stuff on their own solo. And like you said, I, I guess there's... You know, I haven't done any research. I haven't certainly listened to it. When someone puts out a few songs or in doing bits and pieces, I'm just... Yeah, he's not doing anything substantial. It's, it's interesting to me when that happens to... Yeah. But he's somebody who I think got more interested in the visual arts, if I know, if I know about Michael Stipe. Mm, I think okay. He, he started doing i think he had like a production film production company and started to get more interested in that side of things so i think he's doing stuff but maybe he's just sort of i don't know maybe you just run out of ideas uh, you know, I, maybe I was, just that you, you have a certain reservoir and that's it and, and that's it and maybe at some point if you're you start tapping into it he might be like the if not the jd salinger like the bill murray of music where he doesn't especially need to or like to do it in the circumstances that other people want him to do it. Yeah. And I, I can see it with today's music industry has always been the worst industry in the world. And to do it now, you'd think, well, how, who's going to listen to this? And what's the context? And what do I have to do? If I ever do make a record, what do I have to do to get it out there? And do I really want to do all that bullshit? So, yeah, that's, that's, that's that. But it does seem like in order to succeed in music, it has to be part of your blood and your daily lifestyle and your livelihood. You have to like want, it's almost like seeing a shark stop swimming. You, what's wrong? <laughs> yeah. You're, you are your, you are your art. God, the, that's such a good, that's such a good analogy. I make good analogies. Yeah. That's the what, that's all I do. That's all I do. Okay. So, uh, are we indeed done? Is it the end of the podcast as we know it? No, we you should not feel fine about it. <laughs> I don't feel fine. Michael Winfield. Uh, my last choice is the last words from like the final verse, which is when he kind of asks, right? Right. Oh, okay. I love, and then it kind of tails off into kind of the chorus over yeah. and over again. I love that all of the stream of consciousness ends with him, answering him, him asking a question to like the audience, uh-huh. to the listener, like you get what I'm going for, right? Right. And then him answering again. I love that all of it comes down to this question and answer of like, man, this guy was just telling you his dreams and then you just gotta kinda have to nod and be like, Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. I know what you're talking <laughs> Oh yeah, I was I was at that party where all the LBs were there too, but I'm I yeah, I don't know. What <laughs> yeah. is he talking about? I don't know. But I I love that those were like the like he uses that a couple of times. He uses like the kind of repetition of um words a few times he rhymes needs with needs at some point which mm-hmm. if you yeah. can rhyme the two words together that's perfect yeah um light a candle light a motive step down step down he does it a few times in it and then by the time you get to the last two words of the of like the the final verse and he's just like right right i i love that's yeah. my favorite part of the song as opposed to screaming out 
Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. It's it's just this. He assumes that you know what he's talking about. Maybe he doesn't know what yeah. he's talking about. But I I I like how that's the end of it. It does seem like a very authoritative monologue until that moment where you realize, oh, I was in a dialogue with Michael Stipe, and he wanted me to confirm all this stuff. I gotta say, I missed out some of those words. It uh, does sound like someone kind of coked up at a party, kind of yeah, coming yeah. up to you and just rambling on another, <laughs> right? 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 Sure, right. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree. I also don't understand that about songwriting. How do you choose when to end a song full stop and when you decide to let a song's chorus or the music oh, the just fade out. or the fade out. When, yeah. when do you make that decision? And I'm always, I'm constantly in awe of like songwriting yeah. in general. How do you know when to just like, man, we're just gonna let this play out? Yeah. How many times in con- how long in concert do you let it play yeah. out for too? And in concert though, don't they have to kind of like you have to tag it though? In concert, you can't just go, you can't turn then the volume on the PA in the the concert hall and just let it fade out. Yeah, they kind of like hit it with a sting. Yeah, it's just like. And but, they kind of also let the audience drive it. Yeah. I think also um, they would use this as like the closer of like their set before they went to like an encore. Pre encore closer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And so they'd kind of just walk off stage and. One by one wh- kind of thing until you left with Bill Berry just sort of playing drums. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably. Guys, that was pretty amazing. Uh, I want to thank you for your very concerted and uh, um, obvious effort and intellectual prowess that you applied towards making these choices and um here's what i dug uh i really liked uh richard how you intellectualized it and michael how you kind of emotionalized it uh thinking of this song in terms of your relationship with it um choosing the karaoke song observation was really fun and then realizing that right at the end um it was a dialogue or it was it was something that michael stipe actually asked you a question so that was a neat observation. So the karaoke is a, one of the choices, and the right, right is a choice. And then Richard did a great job of placing this in historical context and uh, summoning up a figure who was mentioned in the song and his relationship with uh, um, his audience in terms of a Pied Piper of sorts of, uh, of the value and, and importance of entertainment, and that's kind of Bernstein, so I'll choose that. And then you and I got on a fun discussion about um, Lanny Bruce. So I want to go with that. Um, and I think that's a fascinating uh, topic to even bring up in regards to this song. Would a person listen back to the song and think, was that song good or was it a list song just like Love Shack? Right. <laughs> you know, or, or uh, uh, We Didn't Start the Fire? We Didn't Start the Fire. We Didn't Start the Fire. Maybe we should do a podcast about that. Hmm. Mm, could be upcoming. So we went two and two this time around, and... Uh, yeah, but my two were better. Wow. I think. You didn't start the argument. You were always turning. always turning so the world's world been burning. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. This has been the Right, the Mount Rushmore Podcast. Uh, as always, I'm Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. Michael.